Hey guys, this is Doug Fletcher. Welcome back to What's the Hazard? It is Friday, May 21st, and it's going to be a nice day here in Omaha today, it appears. Um, sun is supposed to shine. We've had rain, gosh, daily for about a week, week and a half. It's been raining every morning, and that brings me to my pet peeve, okay? Um, we talk about workplace safety on this podcast, but safety or living safely is just a mindset and it's not really something that shuts off at the end of the day hopefully it's really something that should extend throughout your life and so here's my pet peeve I've been driving to work in the rain or driving home from work in the rain every day for the last five or six days please turn your lights on (laughs) okay I, I know this is just like drive some people crazy but I can't see you I realize that you can probably see in front of your vehicle, but I can't see you behind me or passing me in the rain. So, you know, a lot of cars now, they have driving lights that will come on when you turn on the ignition, or I I know of vehicles that will even, the lights will come on if you turn on the wipers. But some vehicles don't do that. Please turn your lights on. Man, it drives me crazy when I'm looking in my rearview mirror and then there's this black or pavement-colored car gray, whatever, that is passing me and I can't see him. Okay, so I, I've got that off my chest. How do you feel about that, Ian? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in the, the automatic <laughs> headlights group myself. Oh, good for you, but, man. But the problem I find with that is every time I take it in to get an oil change or service, for some reason they always shut those automatic headlights <laughs> they off. They turn them off. And then I'll be driving next thing the sun's setting and, oh, my gosh, I can't. It's pitch black. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah man. so check your headlights. I yeah, agree. that's a great one. Okay, man, so. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry I had to get off on that first thing. That just drove me nuts. I mean, it's just, oh, and I, well, and I you know, at 62 years old, I don't have the same reaction time that I did, when, <laughs> or at least I don't believe, you know, it doesn't appear that I do. Well, and, and, and me at 37, when I'm driving in the morning to get my kids off to, to school, and I got my cup of coffee in one hand, and, you know, Maybe I don't have the best reaction time as I should <laughs> right. either. So you got your kids' homework that you're doing completely yeah. <laughs> in the other hand. Not yet, not yet. Oh, that's coming, man. <laughs> believe me. Well, before we get started, hey, I would be remiss if I didn't thank our sponsors. Um, and and I use the term sponsors. I mean, I guess that's the appropriate term. The reality is, this is just, these are just three guys who believe in the message. They're very very generous with their hard earned money. And they are giving us the opportunity to bring you this podcast. I think, uh, as I've referred to them in the past, they're true believers. Uh, so first and foremost, um, well, I guess I shouldn't put them in any particular order. First uh, is Jim Cover, our buddy, the, uh, the program manager down at the Nebraska Department of Labor, on-site consultation group. Jim's been a safety guy his entire adult life and uh, is obviously committed to the mission. So thank you, Jim. Cheyenne Wolford with CCS Group. And John Falowich with Falowich Construction Services. These are two guys that just businessmen. They own their own companies, and they believe that safety is important. You know, they look after their folks and um, try to provide them a safe work environment and make sure they get home at the end of the day. And so I think they just believe in the message. So John, Cheyenne, and Jim, thank you guys. You know I appreciate your help, and uh, we wouldn't be able to do this without you. So my guest today, you've heard from already, I think it's Ian Poole. After losing 40 pounds, I oh. didn't recognize him walking in the door. But Well, thanks. You know, that, Yeah, man, you look part, terrific. Part of that goes along with the safety mentality in and of <laughs> itself. Right, so, right. you know, Trying to lead by example, right? It was uh, back around the beginning of the new year. I, I realized not only was my waistline getting larger, my blood pressure was going up. So <laughs> There seems to be a correlation. Personally, I just decided I need to do something about that and um, – you know, we're we're all kind of in charge of our own health. I think, I think this past year and a half has proven that with the pandemic that our health is really in our control. And and uh, you know, take care of yourself so you can take care of others, including your family. So. That's good, man. I totally agree. I, I mean, obviously, I had like three quarter pounders yesterday, but <laughs> but I do agree. It's a, this life on the road is very difficult. Yeah, you know, to maintain it a healthy. Yes, yeah, so. Um, so as you guys know, Ian and I are both former OSHA compliance officers, and actually we're both former assistant area directors. We both did a stint doing that. Um, did you do the compliance assistance gig at all, or did you have an opportunity no, to do that? No, um, honestly, it was a job I would have loved to have had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know you did that role for a long time. Yeah, well, everybody always says that's the greatest job in the whole agency. It's the greatest job ever, man. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, I did interview for that position in another 
in another area office outside the Omaha area. I, I was not selected, but you know, we all take our own pass through advancement. And, and I always said about that compliance assistance role, I said, I, I, I know that OSHA is an enforcement agency and they have to have a way to get people to comply to keep the workers safe. But unfortunately, a lot of times the only interaction that employers ever have is with enforcement. And I personally think there needs to be more compliance assistance. It, it, it seems like there should be a better balanced role out there where maybe a quarter of the staff could be compliance assistance and the other Thank staff you. enforcement. But I guess they rely on the state to try to fill that gap, but they have a hard time. Yeah. So. I, I couldn't agree with you more, man. And I, I find that interesting that you say that because um, as a young guy, I, you know, and um, just recently coming out of OSHA and you were the assistant area director out in Philly, mm-hmm. um, you know, m- most people don't agree with that position, but I, I personally do. I think that if the area offices could commit more people to doing the outreach and compliance assistance, <clears throat> the voluntary compliance yeah. um, interactions, I, I think certainly the reputation of the office, the agency would be better, the relationships would be better, and probably the outcomes would be better because I do believe, you know, I brought that to my former area director's uh, <laughs> attention one time, Ben Bear. I, as I was driving over here, man, thinking um, everybody that I worked for has departed the agency. So when I, when I came into OSHA in 1996, uh, ben Bear was the area director in Omaha, and then Bernie Halber and Bonita Winningham were the, the assistant area directors, the team leaders. All three are gone now. Yeah. I mean, I am old, dude. <laughs> so, you know, this is, a, this is a, a painful reality for me. But, you know, I proposed to Ben one time, you know, we had, I think, maybe eight or ten compliance officers slated for the Omaha area office mm-hmm. to cover the state of Nebraska, and then one compliance assistant specialist. And I said, gosh, just give me two more of those people. And we can really do something special. And he just well, laughed at me, of and, course. And, and after you left um, and Bernie retired, there there was a several-year gap that they didn't even have a compliance assistant specialist in, yeah. in Omaha. And, and you know, I, I will say this personally. I mean, of course, I spent nine years as a compliance officer, but I also felt a personal responsibility to provide some of that outreach and assistance to employers. I know it wasn't always the most positive interaction when, as a compliance officer, you show up at this person's business unexpectedly, you know, and, and, and they're worried. But I, I think um, hopefully the agency has a number of, of good compliance officers, and I believe they do. Sometimes when you get a, a new crop of compliance officers, it takes time to, to sort of lead them down the path to what a good compliance officer should do. But I always told employers, I said, I know I'm here to do enforcement, but I'm also here to educate you. I said, if, if I leave here today and just slide off a bunch of citations and things you're going to get fined for, but you don't understand what to do to, to make your workplace safer, I failed at my role. And I always took that uh, as a personal responsibility. I don't know that all compliance officers do. I think there's a lot of good ones out there that, that, that follow that. Um, but, you know, really it's a – I always found it was about finding a balance. You know, if, if, if you're always too heavy-handed all the time and uh, seem to just want to pull out the, those credentials to show your authority over somebody, uh, you're not going to get very far uh, with changing employers' mindsets. Man, that's really outstanding. And, I, you know, we, we did not work together. I think I had departed Omaha when you had moved into the Omaha area office. Yeah. So we really had never had an opportunity to work together uh, directly. And I'm really impressed by that, man. Um, Thank you for saying that. I sure. do. I do think the agency um, has has missed an opportunity in that respect because I, I can remember when I was a compliance officer, it was just hump inspections, hump inspections, more numbers, more numbers. We would go into our morning meeting on Monday, and we and uh, Bonita would tell us we need to get fourteen inspections oh, that yeah. week, and there were three of us, you know, I, because everybody else is on yep. vacation. And man, I think that. Sometimes in your haste to get these numbers, to meet these metrics, you miss opportunities to build relationships and educate, and I think that is really unfortunate. I think if if the agency could get away from that to some degree and give the compliance officers an opportunity to spend a little bit more time on the education piece, everybody would be probably more content with the agency, 
and maybe it would be a little easier to to stomach some of those citations if you if you thought you were getting something out yeah. of the interaction. That's a great point, man. Well, and I, I mean, you know, the pendulum has shifted again. We'll, we'll I I don't know that they they have a, a a deputy assistant yet. I haven't. Well, they I've nominated really, some dude out of yeah. California to be the assistant secretary. Yeah, he'll assistant he'll obviously secretary, have to go yeah. through confirmation. And they've got a deputy, but, I, you know, I mean, another California OSHA person or something. And no disrespect intended, but I think that is indicative of what we can expect. Yeah, I, I, I've been kind of removed from that environment uh, since the election and every, everything. And it's just... I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, I I hope that uh, you know they keep the same fair uh, approach as they try to, and, and you know I spent some time working in the national office. It's not that the people there do try, but it it is quite the mission to to take on for such a small agency. I mean, you know, peop, a lot of people don't really realize how small OSHA is and what a drop in the bucket they are compared to other federal agencies. You're talking. About two thousand employees for an totally. entire for an entire agency. So, mm-hmm. and uh, half of those are in the national office, are they? Yeah. Not, are oh, they? <laughs> it seems like, like probably at least a quarter, if not a third. Yeah. Um, but yeah. What did you do in the in the national office? Uh, I was working in the Directorate of enforcement program. So, uh, you know, I spent I spent uh, three months there. I I thought it was uh, a place I wanted to be, but um, you know, no disrespect to to the national office, but I, I found myself being too quickly, too far removed from the field that I wanted to get back to an area office where I felt like I was contributing more to the cause. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's kind of one of those situations where you realize individually, maybe I can have more of an impact in the area office than I do as another drone in the national office, (laughs) so to speak. That's interesting, man. You know, I only made a few trips to the national office just on you know, for a week at a time, I never was assigned to the national office. You'd go up there for a meeting or you'd go up there to give a presentation or something. It always made me nervous, man. They were always a little more too tightly wound for me or whatever. I don't know exactly what it was, but yeah. they made me wear socks and stuff. Sure. And I just hated that. <laughs> you know, I had to wear a shirt and tie. Oh, my God. You know, so, hey, man, so you have been separated for about six months now from the agency? Yeah, I left in October, so it was right uh, about six months. Right at the end of the fiscal year. And you, so. you started your own business, Flagship Safety Consulting. So how's that going? Are you enjoying it? I, I enjoy the, the, the freedom <laughs> to say. Um, I also enjoy the, the idea that when when you show up at a business, it's because they've they want you there. They've called right. you there. They, uh, that's interesting, isn't there. it? <laughs> right. It, it takes a little getting used to, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I used to always look for the door behind me just in case I had to make a, make a quick <laughs> exit, you know. Didn't like to be trapped in a room with you know, a bunch of people. And so um, having, having said that, what, what memories do you have of OSHA? What, do you, what did you really like about your time with OSHA? And, and, like, and, you know, what didn't you like about the agency necessarily? Well, on, honestly, it was the, the, the staff that you work with, um, you know. You're, you're kind of – I, I want to say that – the people that work for the agency don't have friends outside the agency, but I mean the the all the the threat and warning about ethics that they seem to cram down your throat and force feed you when when you're working for the agency that it, they really almost kind of deter people from having personal relationships with anybody that has any sort of business association. Mm-hmm. Which which I get it, you know, uh, you don't want to be inspecting your own friends and family, mm-hmm. but to an extent it almost seemed a little overboard. Um, I wouldn't say that I was afraid to admit I worked for OSHA when I met somebody new, but sometimes you kind of shy away from that talk <laughs> right, about what, right. what do you do, you know? Yeah. The hairs start to go up on their back when they find out about, you know, what you do. And <laughs> That's so funny, man. I do remember that. I can remember going to picnics, you yeah. know, being invited to an outing of some sort and not knowing some of the people in the introduction phase. And then they would just all kind of like drift away from you, <laughs> you know. That was, it was very obvious once you started but to realize what was happening. The, the, my time in the Omaha office w- was great, you know. Um, my uh, the, the staff there, uh, a, a lot of the staff, the staff were uh, 
were, were veterans, former military service members. And while I didn't serve myself, um, you know, my, my wife uh, served four years in the Air Force, so I was a, a military spouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I felt there was a strong camaraderie just based off of people's prior service. Uh, there was a high level of respect for one another in, in the office amongst the, the staff. Um, and, you know, we, uh, the job can be stressful at times, but, uh, having each other in the office to sort of bring the mood down a little bit and, and, and joke and laugh about some, some things from time to time, just to cut through that tension. It, it, it was great, but, um, yeah, kind of like what you said, you know, uh, the last time I worked in the Omaha office was, uh, summer of 2018. So going on three years now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think there was about nine compliance officers there when I left and only two that I worked with are, are still compliance officers there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about a, a, a changeover and, you know, people move on. Uh, I think some people have retired, some people have advanced in their careers. Um, but it's, uh, I'm sure it's, a totally different environment than than I've worked mm-hmm. in, and I I just don't know I just don't know what it's like there now. So, mm-hmm. but you're right, man. I when I look back on my career, and I, I can say it was kind of like uh, what is the book A Tale of Two Cities? Yeah, you know that one. It, it was the best of times. It was mm-hmm. the worst of times. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that's correct. I, my, my boys are both English majors. They're either going to cringe if I got that wrong. But, <laughs> but the, the reality is there were times when I absolutely loved that job. And certainly the compliance assistance position was really well suited to my particular temperament and talents. You know, I'm just a, I'm a relationship bullshitter. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm technically no better than any of the other. I mean, you know, you can read the standards and you can hear get the training and you can interpret those things reasonably, competently. But I really enjoyed the, the compliance assistance piece. Uh, I was not a good compliance officer. You know, I think I could make a reasonable inspection. I could conduct an inspection relatively thoroughly. I think we were both industrial hygienists, mm-hmm. you know, so we could do that part of it. The monitoring was fine, all of those kind of things. But I'd got no joy from hammering some poor bastard that may or may not. And it wasn't Always my discretion, right? Right. I mean, there were times when, you know, my former um, assistant area director, my team leader was Bonita Winningham the majority of my time with OSHA. And while Bonita and I, I consider us to be friends, actually, um, we did not agree on very much from an enforcement standpoint. Sure. She had her um, opinion and I had mine and hers obviously carried more weight because she was the boss. And so we, we differed quite a bit on those things, and we would struggle with that a little bit from time to time. I got no great – now, having said that, when you ran into somebody that you knew was an asshole, there was some – I, I will say that I got some pleasure out of, <laughs> you know, piling on occasionally when they really deserved it, when it was obvious they didn't care. Yeah. You know, I actually, I liked it when OSHA did that because there are still employers out there that have no regard for their employees, and OSHA needs to hammer them. And I, I have no problem with that. But the vast majority of people that I interacted with were either just naive or just didn't have the resources or just, I mean, yeah, you know, I, it, it was tough. And I, so slaughtering them was not always pleasant. I, I remember one particular inspection I did, and this is over in Lincoln. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really want to name names or maybe it's okay to, but uh, it, it was a small family own lumber company and the owner was probably 80 years old mm-hmm. and uh you know i i came there on a complaint it was an ex-employee you know um so you know he he took it very personal you know that this was an attack on his business and and everything but i you know i had spent some extra time with him explain some things and i mean the man had been in business for over 50 years probably more like 60 years mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I had, a, I really had to sit down and talk to him and say, look, I, you know, I, I'm here to investigate these things, but look at it this way. You've been in business 60 years and this is the first ocean inspection you've ever had. Mm-hmm. You must be doing a few things, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, he, he still 
had to walk away with about $12,000 in penalties, unfortunately. But, you know, I cut him every break I could without mm-hmm. losing my job, I should right, say. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, yes. And, and that was, a, you know, the important thing I, I always try to get across is, you know, these compliance officers are people too. Um, they don't always like coming in and, and issuing you this number of citations and this number of fines, but it's their job too, unfortunately. And they have families to take care of as well too, um, you know, so – they're on a lot of them are just honest people trying to do a job that absolutely know, it, and it's an important job but it is but uh yeah i remember that particular inspection you know i i tried to unfortunately what osha did nationwide about oh eight nine years ago uh they they told area offices they could no longer offer you know 50 percent penalty reductions mm-hmm. and man that that really hurts for a lot of lot of businesses out there the ones that truly just want to fix the issues and move on but it also made the the job i think for the assistant area directors harder because now now you got to try to settle cases for for peanuts for penalty reductions Mm -hmm. and then they increase the citation amounts etc etc and um it was just kind of on a whim from the national office you know there was no input i don't recall there ever being any input from the area offices or the region when they mm. when they increased penalties and took away penalty uh, reductions. But right. Yeah, I'm not sure I had any input in that either, truthfully, <laughs> now that you mention it. But I do remember when that was happening, and it did make it more difficult to settle cases. I yeah. wouldn't be I would be interested to know, and I honestly don't keep up with the metrics, you know, obviously as well as we used to, um, what the uh, contest rate is, or if that has increased the number of contested cases based on that. When. When I was in Philadelphia, I know we were we didn't want to be above ten percent, and we were struggling to keep it at contest rates at that ten percent mm-hmm. number. So mm-hmm. um, that that and that's higher than than we were yeah. attempting to. I think we were running right around three, four, five percent in that range, and that would always prompt a phone call from the regional office as well. You know, because yeah. Omaha tended to have more contested cases because uh, there were times where we just took a harder line. You know, um, so that that and, often and I led think to I think on some issues you do. I think uh, unprotected excavations, mm-hmm. you got to take that hard stance. Um, you know, high grader fall hazards in construction. You know, people working. Uh, I mean, the standard says six feet, but you see people working three, four stories above the ground without fall protection. There is no second chance from mm-hmm. a three to four story fall. So. Right. The, those ones you got to take a hard hard stance with, but some of the other issues, you know, program issues, forklift training, uh, hazard communication when the employees know what chemicals they're working with, but mm-hmm. they're they're not completely compliant on labels right. or or uh, that's a great example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I I see where the agency should be able to offer more leniency in, in mm-hmm. those areas for settlement purposes. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, what what oftentimes happened is, you know, we had when we issued a case, you know, we we had the prima facie evidence there, um, but unfortunately, I didn't have the authorization to say, you know, I I can give you more than forty percent. When I was assistant area director, I I I didn't have the authorization to say I can give you more than a forty percent reduction, and then I had to go to the region and say, okay, these guys are begging me can we get 50 mm-hmm. and sometimes they say yes and sometimes they'd say no and i say well if we don't they're gonna give us a notice of contest mm-hmm. and they give us notice contest and then we kick it over to the solicitor's office which is osha's attorneys and osha's attorneys would just kind of look at this this case file and just kind of balk at it and it's like you want us to go to court over this absolutely not mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. so i mean it was it tied up. I don't think the national office realized how much resources tied up at the area office and uh, regional offices. When if they just had more leeway on mm-hmm. penalty reduction for the sake of abatement, right, right, exactly. For the sake of abatement, that you know they wouldn't be spinning their their wheels on settling these cases and tying up valuable resources. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, man. And and you're right. That that is interesting because. You know, having done a number of informals myself back in those days, from an OSHA perspective, in the field office, when you're doing that informal conference, you are arguing the technical merits of that case, typically. If we've established the prima facie, 
evidence that we are required to in order to issue a citation, then we're usually talking about, you know, what they had done, the training they had done, why the condition existed. But once it got to the solicitors, everything changed to that legal perspective. Mm -hmm. Can we win this? What is the uh, ramification if we lose this? What kind of precedent does it set? And so we were arguing apples and oranges oftentimes with the solicitor's office. And that, as you said, that just really mucked the process down where what we ultimately wanted was corrective action. Right. We wanted those hazards abated. But not only that, the the solicitor's office, they, you know, they're, they're the department of labor's attorneys. They don't just work for OSHA. Right. So those guys that got to go to bat for court or in court for OSHA are also handling, you know, wage and hour, wage and hour, whistleblower, um, some railroad workers cases. It's, it's all over the board. So. Sarbanes Oxley (laughs) or something. And those 22 other. Yeah. We used to get those all the time. Yeah. Um, But so, you know, ironically enough, when it comes to, you know, what uh, a, a, a buttoned up, case you know that osha can defend oftentimes osha has a better idea about it than what the solicitor's of course do um, i would agree but yeah and and it's a big ass sometimes to go to court on you know some some minor a issues. bench grinder yeah. yeah i mean i mean usually the the solicitor's office is going to want to reserve their resources to important cases you know was this a fatality yes or no mm-hmm. um you know is is it a a 5a1 that we have precedents mm-hmm. for that we can defend, yes or no. Uh, are, are there willful citations? They're going to focus their efforts on that. Mm-hmm. I would agree, and as they should. I mean, they have limited resources, and they are worried about you know, precedent and things like that. And, and um, so I, I would agree we were, you know, if there were situations where it would have been better to just settle the case, get abatement, move forward, you touched on something earlier that you you mentioned, and I think is a really interesting subject is compliance officer subjectivity, mm-hmm. latitude. Sure. You know, when you're making these inspections, it's interesting because, you know, the book would tell you that if there is a if there's a hazardous condition that is found in the regulations, there should be a citation issued for it. You know, I mean it's really not discretionary, you know, but as compliance officers evolve, when you know they kind of enter in that eager, ridiculous, you know, read the book and point at stuff condition, but they evolve into thinkers, mm-hmm. hopefully problem solvers and thinkers. That's the normal progression, and you get these senior journey level compliance persons, you know, like our friends like Brian and Phil and Matt, and you know the people that have done it for a while. That, that then there's there is some subjectivity to it, and. Some of that has to do with, and, and we talk about this, I've talked about this with clients, how you're treated as a compliance officer. I mean, sure. that initial interaction and how the, you know, are these people actually listening and attempting to learn and making logical, rational arguments or contributions to the discussion, or are they just being dicks, <laughs> you know? And that, whether that, it is probably shouldn't be the case, you know, that probably shouldn't impact the outcome of an inspection, how you're being treated, but it does. Did you have those situations? I mean, I, I had situations where a guy spit on me. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> and um, I have to be honest, man, I looked for everything that I could find. And, uh, you know, that's not always the case, and I didn't, you know. For me, it never rose above. I, I definitely got flipped off a time or two. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, now, working for OSHA or just in your, out, out in your normal for OSHA, life? Out working for OSHA. And, and then, um, you know, I, I did have – a, a guy smoking a cigarette, you know, and screaming in my face about six inches away, but uh, never spat on, uh, no. thankfully. Well, <laughs> I don't know what I would do. The, that may have been the 90s. Yeah, you know. I don't did, did you deck him? No, I didn't. I thought about it. I was, you know, I was a little bit perplexed. I had never had that happen before. Oh, you know? man. But I know Big Mike had a guy chase him with a pitchfork one time. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that resulted in a citation of some sort. I you know, can only but, imagine. But that subjectivity, I think, is actually important to the process. I, I know that management tend not to like that idea, mm-hmm. but you can really buy, so to speak, <laughs> maybe that's a wrong term, but you can gain a lot of good faith yeah. from well, an employer if you're not there just I, to slaughter them. I, I remember a, a certain past 
assistant area director that that always said he needed some sort of drop citation. <laughs> right. You know who I'm talking about. Yes, I do. <laughs> Something that he can negotiate with. That he could just throw out in the informal, you know. so Make I, it look <laughs> like he was very uh, understanding and sympathetic. That is interesting, too, man. I mean, I guess there's a lot of, you know, nuances to what we used to do that, you know, most people are probably not aware yeah. of. But well, what, one thing that I've often pondered a lot, and, and uh, you know, there, there's always sort of a, a, a magic number for for a number of citations that that the bean counters think should be out there. And mm-hmm. in my days, it was around around three serious violations per inspection. Mm-hmm. They wanted us to really see those three violations per inspection. And and I I can tell you, oftentimes it was hard. It wasn't because of lack of trying. It's just that if it's not there, it's not there. Right. Um, and especially some of the employers that, unfortunately, they pop up on the amputations list every two years, and so OSHA's back just because they, their lists are so stale and, and mm-hmm. moldy that we just keep coming back to the same place, and they're like kind of looking at their watch and calendar. Oh, yeah, yeah, we knew you were coming about this month. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. But, you know, I, I think it comes down to – Maybe the agency needs to do a better job of, of targeting so they're not going back to the same place. I, I know recently you and I were working with a business where uh, they had just been stuck on that list cycle and the area office didn't even realize that they weren't supposed to inspect this mm-hmm. place. And yeah. I mean, we got straightened out. It was all good in the end. It was a, I don't know how the area office felt about it, but overall it was a positive experience. Well, but, they certainly wouldn't want the, the bad press of yeah, making yeah. an inspection they weren't supposed and, and, to. And people make mistakes. It was an honest mistake. But yeah. I think part of what I think has happened is OSHA is always going back to the same places. And a lot of employers, you know, after an inspection or two, they kind of get compliance figured mm-hmm. out. So is it really fair to say that three point whatever violations per inspection is the right number? Maybe over the years, through OSHA fulfilling its mission, the, those numbers have naturally dropped down. But unfortunately, it's always those indicators that the the people that seem to have an idea of how OSHA should do the job, that that's what they rely on. It's, it's just statistics. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes the area offices get wrapped up in that because they don't want to be the they don't want to be the lowest in the region or the nation. Sure. So that was interesting, and man, that, you know that is really that that is a full hour discussion. Oh yeah. <laughs> but but like everyone else, OSHA had had metrics that they were using to gauge their effectiveness, and that the higher ups were using to monitor activities. And oftentimes they were things like you just described. You know how many citations were issued. You know what were the dollar amounts, and you know. Um, how many willful, serious repeats or yeah. things like that. You know, I mean, and, and those are natural metrics that, that seem to fall out of what OSHA does. But I can remember <laughs> we would do our conference call on Monday mornings and the regional administrator was Chuck Adkins at the time. And we would go through the region and we would look at those statistics and we would hear the Omaha, your in-compliance rate is too high, you know. And mm-hmm. so over the course of nine months, our in-compliance rate had fluctuated to... I think there was some little a little bit of variability that they allowed, but Chuck wanted you to be in the smoke. So, oh if, yes, <laughs> if the national office m- number was you know twenty percent in compliance, and you had crept up to maybe twenty five percent in compliance, regardless of whether the inspections justified that, that became an issue. And so we would hear that your in compliance rate is too high, and the the message that that sends to the compliance officers is well. Don't issue any incompliances. Yeah. You know, and sometimes they were justified. It was always a little bit of a challenge. I had some difficulty with that. You know, um, it seemed to me that if we believed what we were doing was actually effective or useful, as injury and illness rates year after year after year declined, which they have tended to do, mm-hmm. that the incompliance rate would actually go up. Yeah. That yeah, there, there would be a an indirect correlation, but that wasn't always the case, man. This is what the in-compliance rate was supposed to be and uh, don't deviate from it. And yeah. I, I just found that to be troubling at times. And, yeah. you know, when I was acting area director in Omaha, Marsha Drum, who was the 
the the acting regional administrator at the time would call me on Monday and say, Fletch, got to get these numbers in order. And I'm like, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fletch, Fletch, Fletch. I'm Marsha, you know I mean? And Marsha has also since retired, and I've spoken with her a few times since her retirement. But they were being held accountable as well. They were answering to someone above them, and so there, there was just this odd, um, yeah. You know, I don't know. It, it's, it's that it strug- it's, I struggled with that a little it's bit. It's that disconnect from from the field, you know, to the national office. Um, and and I remember, uh, uh, you know, I short amount of time I spent in the national office, and and part of what I did there was trying to to help with uh, some contested cases. That uh, it's like, hey, you know. They they want to they want to sell this case, but they're they're not agreeing with with the abatement here, um, and you know they've been working for months between the the area office be working for months between the the regional office and the national solicitor's office, and it's like finally one day I just called up the compliance officer and hey, what you know what's going on here it, in the national office you know I, I and then next thing I know I get a I wouldn't say it was really a, my my rear chewed, but I, I had a little conversation about with. Well, you should probably go through the ARA for enforcement programs. I said, well, I wasn't getting anywhere with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to get the area office an answer with you know talking to them instead of the the lost message and everything <laughs> right. in between there. And and I I think that's where where a lot of this, uh, you know, what the national office expects and what's really reasonable in the area office level is, is just lost. Yeah. So, and that, that, that can be an issue with just the, the government in general, Oh, yes. you know, following <laughs> this particular chain of command or following that, you know, so now the message has been handled I four mean, or five times. The, the way I looked at it at the time was, you know, I was, uh, most of your compliance officers on, on the government pay scale are, are GS 12s, your journeyman compliance officers. Mm-hmm. And, and, in my role, I at the national office, I was a GS thirteen. So I just looked at it as a, a GS thirteen giving a GS twelve some advice. But mm. my my gosh, did I <laughs> jump some <laughs> levels of command there? Right. Oh my god. Yeah. It's like I'm surprised you lived to talk about it. <laughs> you know, I got I got reprimanded one. T- well, I got reprimanded many times, but one that comes to mind in particular was um, there was a little known uh, sub paragraph in the sanitation standard. 1910-141 that talks about trash can lids. Oh, yes. Okay? <laughs> and so I issued two trash can lid citations during my tenure as a compliance officer. One of them was out at a facility that handled hides oh, sure. out in Hastings. I won't give you the name of the company, but it was <laughs> Hastings Hides, okay? Okay. And so you could probably deduce that from the description. But um, they had a break room that was a shithole. And when I went into the break room, just to peek, I typically didn't inspect break rooms, but I just walked in there and the guys were all sitting there eating and there were rats climbing out of the trash uh. can. And so I thought, well, this isn't an ideal situation. And so I took a picture of it with my Polaroid, you know, back then. And um, I issued a citation and I can remember I, I did that twice over, you know, two different companies. And I got called into the office. Ben called me into the office one day after the fact and said, are you issuing citations for trash can lids? And I was like, you damn right I am. And he's like, uh, well, I just got called from the national office saying, who the hell is down there issuing trash cans? You know, so um, I was instructed that that was not going to happen anymore. Yeah. But in my opinion, that was what the standard was written for. I mean, right. it just seemed like it was appropriate, but there were certain things that the national office didn't like or want that the field sure. to tamper with, you know. So. Well, and, and it takes so much effort to change standards once they've been promulgated. So sometimes, you know, the national office will put out these enforcement memos about, hey, we will not issue citation for this or that. But, uh, you know, the agency goes through some serious brain drain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm sure at some point there was an enforcement memo in the 90s or maybe the 80s. And then, you know, maybe Chuck was the DRA back then. I mean, the man worked until he was 81 or <laughs> right. 82. Uh, and yeah. once he left, like, everybody forgets the history of things. And then, mm-hmm. oh, hey, we still have this enforcement directive from 30 years ago that nobody, this fresh crop, doesn't know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I there was a time or two that I, I, I had issued those citations for 
serious citation for stuff in front of an electrical panel that was easily moved. And uh, about the third time I issued those, hey, why are you issuing these? <laughs> right. You know, can they can they can they still walk up and shut off the breaker if they need to? Well, yeah, okay, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but again, man, you touch on a very good point. That that is incredibly difficult. To keep track of not only the the regulations themselves, the compliance directives, the letters of interpretation, yeah. the old memorandum that had come down from some. Well, I mean, for just for example, um, you know, when I moved out to Philadelphia, yeah, I I went out there as a compliance officer initially, but uh, you know, by that point, I'd been with the agency for almost ten years, and then the office that I walked, you know, coming out of Omaha. I think the most senior person had 25 plus years of experience, you know, decades more than I did. But then I step into Philly and hey, you're the most senior person here other than the the old man in the corner who's about ready to retire. Right. Uh who who didn't talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um but all of a sudden it's like what a unique perspective. I, I went from being like the least senior guy to being the most senior person in an office. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so no two area offices are the same. That's interesting, too. So. And that is very true. And they're almost like little fiefdoms to some yeah. degree. You know, we're all, you know, singing from the same sheet of music, but every office handles things a little bit differently. I can remember coming back from the OSHA Training Institute. One of the things that you do when you're a new compliance officer, you get sent up to Chicago. I think it was Dust Plains or wherever the hell the the OSHA Training Uh Institute was. And you would go through fairly, um, I I was going to say intense, that's not the right word, but um, time-consuming training, you know, know, like two weeks of the introductory course and two weeks of uh, accident investigation and two weeks of legal aspects and all of these fairly, you know, fairly intense. And then before you even start taking the technical classes. And I would come back to Omaha after my training, and I'm like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe what I learned. And they're like, forget everything <laughs> forget you just learned. It. That's forget not how we do it here, man. And you're like, what? I mean, some fat guy just told me that I was yeah. supposed to, you know, well, he's the instructor up there because he can't be out in the field anymore. So yeah. they put him at OTI or whatever, you know. And so, and that's not a knock on all OTI. There are no, no, some, there's some, some great, great, instru- but, but great there, instructors. But unfortunately, over the years, there have been those that just wound up there because right. – it, it's easier just to move them over here than to say you're fired. So. Right, it was. <laughs> and Yes, and, and you're absolutely right. There were some great instructors. Linda Sperling, do you remember Linda mm-hmm. Sperling? Um, she's a friend of mine. Or we, we, I haven't spoken with her for a long time, but we became friends. She was also an IH yep. and uh, taught a lot of the industrial hygiene classes that I took. And, you know, and um, so, yes, there were, there were plenty of good instructors up there. I'm, I'm just kind of casting aspersions for the <laughs> sake. You know, but some of them sucked, let's be honest. Some oh. of them were horrible. Well, you know, there was one particular guy that uh, I don't think he's an instructor anymore, but I remember from not my particular class, but I'd had him in a class previously. And then the next time I went to OTI, hey, where is this guy? Oh, um, yeah, he got in a fight with somebody in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Well, maybe maybe you shouldn't have brought that problem child over here. You yeah, know? <laughs> exactly. That is interesting, though, man. Well, I mean, we can go on and on. There are so many things that I would like to talk about, and hopefully, this can be a recurring segment because I think there, there's a, it's it's interesting to the regulated community to know a little bit more about the regulator. You know, the mm-hmm. the agency. One of the things that I would like to talk about, and maybe we could wrap up a little bit. Um, misconceptions about OSHA. I mean, now you're on the other side. Now you're actually out consulting and helping these clients probably deal with either OSHA-related issues or compliance or, you know, just working safely in general. Then there are a lot of misconceptions about the agency out there. Um, I would love to, you know, if you can think of anything off the top of your head, you know, things that people believe about OSHA that probably Mm -hmm. aren't true. The other thing I would like to talk about, and maybe this, I'll give you the choice. You can A or B. Okay. Is um, COSHO professionalism. Um, when I was an assistant area director and as the compliance assistance specialist, I fielded a few phone calls from employers that I knew that I had mm-hmm. worked with and had a relationship with that were concerned about the conduct of a compliance officer. Now, I, th- I think you mentioned before, you know, the vast majority of compliance officers are very dedicated, hardworking, honest um, professionals. But getting that badge and that little bit of authority mm-hmm. can really blow some people's minds. Yeah. You know, and, and occasionally they, 
are so new that they don't really even understand the legal aspects of what they're doing entirely. Yeah, you know exactly. Pick one of those two topics: oh, misconceptions or professionalism. Uh, let's touch on professionalism. Why not? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I it is interesting. I, I remember taking out a, a new newer compliance officer, and you got to remember when when I started my OSHA career, I was only twenty five years old. I was a young man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, after five. Five or six years, I'd gotten the job, figured out pretty well. For whatever reason, I felt like once I reached the age of 30, people started to respect me a little bit more. <laughs> right. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway. Uh, That's I, a misconception. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't feel like as much as a kid trying yes. to tell these adults out here what to do. Uh, but I, I was taking out uh, training somebody that, um, you know, was, was in their mid-40s and had already done a full – career in the military that they, they, they they were a, a safety and health professional in the military and they knew a lot but here me a much younger person trying to train this person and they were very receptive about what i was telling them I, and I, I said hey you know i was like i i know i haven't been in safety as long as you have um but i've been doing this job for you know over five years now and i've learned a lot and I, I know you already understand safety, but the other half of the job you have to figure out is the legal aspect part of it and how to go about doing an inspection, you know, staying within those bounds. And, and you know, it's, it, it really is. Those compliance officers have to learn a whole other skill set that most safety and health professionals don't have to ever, That's a great point, ever man. work with. Yes. So. That's a really good point. That's an interesting observation. I, I appreciate you saying that because that is true. Most safety professionals will not ever have to deal with the those elements of how they perform their work. Yeah. And, and it can be a little tenuous at times. You know, I used to, it's like a fine line and I'm straddling it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's just the nature of how that works. And, and um, I, I found that to be the case too. I, you mentioned earlier that former military um, folks tend to do well in the OSHA world, and I found that to be the case. Yeah. Many of the compliance officers in the Omaha area office at the time I was there, the time you were there, were former military, and they seem to handle the bureaucracy well. Oh, yeah. They've been in a bureaucracy before. They get that. They probably had very good training. If they're a safety person, they've come from a probably good background, good training background. They understand the chain of command. They get yes. all of that stuff, and yes. so they perform really well. They tend to be very detail-oriented. Oftentimes, whether that's their nature or that's been drilled into them. Um, you bring someone in from the outside, you know, someone like me. I, I had been a safety person for nine years before I came to Ocean. I came as a grown man. I was 35 or something when I mm-hmm. started whatever it was, you know. And um, it's different. Your perspective is different. Yeah. The bureaucracy is difficult uh, for the uneducated bureaucrat. You know, it crushed some people that I saw. Yeah, they just couldn't do it, and, and I mean, again, I was, I was young when I started with the agency. Uh, you know, I still think I'm kind of a young guy, but yeah, you are, man. <laughs> In fact, yeah, I think I got children older than you. Uh, maybe not quite. Maybe not quite. <laughs> maybe ones you don't claim. Right, exactly. <laughs> I got a late start on the official ones. Um, but yeah, that was an eye opener to me. You know, uh, I didn't come fresh out of college. I'd worked in industry about three years before I started working for OSHA, but coming out of the private sector, it's like, yeah, there's definitely, uh, you have to learn how to survive the bureaucracy. And honestly, a lot of uh, compliance officers, new compliance officers do not survive that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they don't. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, it, it's always difficult as a hiring manager to hire somebody fresh out of college. It really is. Um, you know, and half of them work out based off my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, uh, you know, it's only it's only been six months since I left Philly. Um, there are a few people that we hired right before I left, and I've already heard a, a few of them have have left within that six month time. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, short careers with the government. So mm-hmm. it's not for everybody, man. No, let's be honest. It is. It, you know, Omaha was like a revolving door for a while while I was there. New person in. I, I 
joked. I used to joke about it, but I wouldn't even bother learning their name for the first year because they were on a probation. <laughs> yeah. That first year was a probationary period, and I would just tell them, I'm not going to bother learning your name because in all likelihood, you're not going to be here in a year. And they'd look at me with this hurt look on their face, you know. <laughs> and then there'd be a box on their desk that last week, put your shit in it, get out, you know what I mean? But I, th- I think the ones that, that make it through that initial first couple-year period, you know, the ones that are going to stick to it, do have that level of professionalism that they recognize that, hey, you got to put feelings aside and do the job. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. that that was always my approach, you know. It's like you got to put your feelings aside about, you know, this is going on in the office or, um, gosh, you know, I'm just upset at home right now about this. Because if you don't and you go out and do an inspection uh, and, and that's getting in your way, you're really doing a disservice to – to the community you're supposed to be helping. That's a great point. Man, I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to work together. You're actually like the most astute compliance officer I've known for, and no disrespect to Phil and Brian and Scott and Mike and Darwin, Matt, you know, the crew. The crew. You know, anyway. Well, man, we got to wrap it up. We're rolling up on our hour. I've really enjoyed this, and I hope we can do this again because there are so many things. We'll just have story time you know, we can there tell we stories go. about Darwin. Everybody's got a story about Darwin. We can maybe, probably... maybe one of these days we can do a, a, a cocktail hour story time. <laughs> well, that, I think that's when <laughs> Phil finally retires. Yeah, there we go. We'll do the cocktail hour story time. Oh, my God, that would be an interesting <laughs> oh, discussion. Oh, it will so. be. Well, thanks, man. Have a great weekend. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Ian, Ian Poole with Flagship Safety Consulting. How do they get a hold of you if they want to reach you, man? You have a, you have a website, email address? Yeah, I have a... a Email address, I, um, it's ianpool at flagshipsafetyconsultants.com. Again, I need to work on getting a shorter email address, but <laughs> when I signed up through uh, oh, GoDaddy yeah. or whatever, like, hey, this is the domain that's available to you. So yep. maybe one of these days I'll get an easier email no, address. No, that's cool. Make, they can, if they want to get a hold of you, they can reach through me as well. Yeah. I'm actually going to post your contact information sure. in the liner notes on this. Sure. So if you've listened to the episode want to get a hold of Ian, um, absolutely do that thanks again for coming thanks to my sponsors thank you guys Uh, much appreciated and everybody have a good weekend and we'll talk to you later a hood at media production